Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Come here now, the fairy said, and tell me how it came about that you found yourself in the hands of the assassins. It happened that Fire Eater gave me five gold pieces to give to my father, said Pinocchio. But on the way I met a fox and a cat who asked me, do you want the five pieces to become two thousand? And I said yes. And they said, come with us to the field of wonders. And I said, let's go. Then they said, let us stop at the Inn of the Red Lobster for dinner, and after midnight we'll set out again. We ate, and we went to sleep. When I awoke, they were gone, and I started out in the darkness all alone. On the road I met two assassins dressed in black coal sacks, who said to me, Your money or your life. And I said, I haven't any money. For you see, I had put the money under my tongue. One of them tried to put his hand in my mouth, and I bit it off and spat it out. But it wasn't a hand, it was a cat's paw. And they ran after me, and I ran and ran till at last they caught me and tied my neck with a rope and hanged me to a tree, saying, Tomorrow we'll come back for you and you'll be dead, and your mouth will be open, and then we'll take the gold pieces that you have hidden under your tongue. Where are the gold pieces now? the fairy asked. I lost them, answered Pinocchio. But he told a lie, for he had them in his pocket. As he spoke, his nose, long though it was, became at least two inches longer. And where did you lose them? In the wood nearby. At this second lie, his nose grew a few more inches. If you lost them in the nearby wood, said the fairy, we'll look for them and find them, for everything that is lost there is always found. Ah, now I remember, replied the marionette, becoming more and more confused. 
I did not lose the gold pieces, but I swallowed them when I drank the medicine. At this third lie, his nose became longer than ever, so long that he could not even turn around. If he turned to the right, he knocked it against the bed or into the window panes. If he turned to the left, he struck the walls or the door. If he raised it a bit, he almost put the fairy's eyes out. The fairy sat looking at him and laughing. Why do you laugh? The marionette asked her, worried now at the sight of his growing nose. I am laughing at your lies. How do you know I am lying? Lies, my boy, are known in a moment. There are two kinds of lies, lies with short legs and lies with long noses. Yours, just now, happen to have long noses. Pinocchio, not knowing where to hide his shame, tried to escape from the room, but his nose had become so long that he could not get it out of the door. Everybody lies. Today, I got my oil changed at the Valvoline drive through down the road, and when the mechanic showed me the dipstick and asked if I could see that it was full, I lied and said, yeah, looks good, when in fact I didn't really see any oil line at all. It was a little lie told to save us both the embarrassment of me telling her I knew absolutely nothing about cars or oil changes or really where to even look for the line, but it was still a lie. We all lie every day. Little lies, big lies, white lies, evil lies, all kinds of lies. It goes all the way back to that day God checked in on Cain and asked if he'd seen his brother and Cain was all like, uh, no, why, have you? Everybody lies, but our society is built on trust. We have to trust each other in order to form groups and tribes and countries and institutions. One well-told lie, alleging Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, for example, has the ability to destroy civilizations. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a way to tell if someone else was lying, the way Blue Fairy made Pinocchio's nose grow longer every time he fibbed? And shouldn't that invention make the world a better place? We have this machine called a lie detector, but does it really work? And if it does, should we use it to decide who's really telling the truth? This is the philosophy of crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Back in the 1700s, there was this philosopher named Immanuel Kant who thought a lot about notions of truth and lies and morality and how people should behave. He came from a strict Christian household in what is now Lithuania, the fourth of his parents' nine kids. Five of his siblings died before they grew up. It was a different time, a difficult time, and Kant wanted to make the world a better place. So Kant came up with this thing called the categorical imperative. The idea is that humans, with all their deep thoughts and emotions, occupy a special place in God's creation, and we should probably act like it, damn it. With great power comes great responsibility, after all. Act only according to the maxim, whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should become a universal law, he said. When his students just blinked at him, he cleared his throat and said, look, only do something if it would be okay if everybody else in the world did it next. So killing is bad because if everyone killed someone, there wouldn't be anyone left in the world. Thinking about cutting someone off in traffic? What if everybody did that? Fucking don't do it. It's wrong. Kant's categorical imperative is a helpful tool for nice people, or people who want to be nice. It's a way of figuring out if what we want to do is good or evil. So what happens if you use the categorical imperative to decide if you should lie? Can you imagine the chaos of a world in which everyone lied all the time? Kant says lying is definitely wrong. Not just kind of wrong, but always wrong. Yeah, but what if... No, 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 listen. Kant says lying is always wrong. In his essay on a supposed right to lie because of philanthropic concerns, Kant imagines a scenario where a murderer knocks on your door one night. And this is no good because you're harboring his intended victim. He wants to murder this guy David for some reason, and David is inside, hiding in your attic. The murderer asks, Hey, is David in there? Because I have this hatchet, see, and I want to bury it in his skull. What do you do? Should you say, Dave's not home, man? Kant says you shouldn't lie to this murderer because your only concern should be your own morality, not the destiny of other people. We should never, ever interfere with someone else's destiny, he says. That's God's business. Destiny is not the business of man. Look, says Kant, let's say you lied to the killer. You tell him, David isn't inside. Well, what if while you were lying to the killer, David looked out the window, saw him, and decided to sneak outside and run next door? When you tell the killer David's not inside, he moves on and finds David at the other house and kills him with the hatchet. That's the tricky thing about other people. They all have their own ideas and plans, and sometimes their plans run counter to your own. While you were trying to manipulate the killer with your lies, while you were playing God, you fucked up the natural order of the universe. And now David's murder is entirely your fault. My mind goes to Anne Frank here. 
the young girl whose Jewish family hid from the Nazis in a secret room behind a bookcase in Amsterdam for two years before they were betrayed by someone they trusted and arrested by the Gestapo in 1944. Anne died somewhere in the concentration camps. We feel anger at the person who told the Nazis where the Franks were hiding. Why would they do that? But Kant says they acted appropriately by providing information and not concerning themselves with what came next. And if you remove emotion from the equation, it's possible to see how Anne's destiny created good in the world. Would her diary have reached so many people if she'd lived? And without that diary, a bit of context is lost for the Holocaust, right? Sure, but still, I would have lied. You know why? Because I'm a human, goddammit, and I run on emotion. There are times you want to smack Kant in the face for being so stubborn. But of course, you shouldn't really do that. I mean, imagine a world where everyone was going around smacking everyone else all the time. There's another way to illustrate how lying makes it difficult for decent people to navigate the world. There was this guy, Raymond Smolian. He worked as a magician, but also as a mathematician. And I guess that makes him a mathematician? Uh, I'll, I'll see myself out. Anyway, uh, Smolian, he wrote a book in 1978 called What is the Name of This Book? Funny guy. In the book, he lays out a philosophical puzzle called The Knights and the Knaves. In case you didn't know, a knave is just another word for a dishonest person. The idea is that a traveler comes across two men, a knight and a knave. He doesn't know which is which, but he does know that all knights tell the truth and all knaves always lie. So what question can he ask them in order to determine which is the knight and which is the knave? It sounds easier than it is. Remember that scene in Labyrinth where Sarah finds the two doors guarded by creepy Muppets? One tells the truth, one lies, and the stakes are high. One of those doors leads to David Bowie, but the other leads to certain death. Sarah thinks she's quite clever when she asks the red guard to tell her which door the blue guard would pick. But she got it wrong and fell into a dungeon full of, I don't, I don't know, detached ghostly faces made of fingers or something? Watch the movie. It's bizarre. This sort of mind puzzle requires Boolean algebra and mathematical tables in order to properly solve. I consider myself a smart man, but I can't figure it out. I don't have the patience. Think on it. Can you figure out which question to ask in order to tell who's really lying to you? There's a link to a YouTube video at the end you can watch which explains it, I guess. My point is, once you introduce lying to the world, shit gets complicated fast. So wouldn't it be better if we had a machine that could just tell us who's lying? Before the invention of the polygraph, Society resorted to some rather creative methods in order to figure out if someone was lying or not. In the Middle Ages, we poured boiling water on a man while interrogating him. People back then believed honest men could withstand the torture, and a lying man would scream. Lots of liars back then, let me tell you. An early version of today's lie detector was created by the physician Cesar Lombroso, who I've mentioned before. He was the same guy who thought he could determine if a man was evil by measuring the shape of his skull. In 1895, Lombroso constructed a device that could measure someone's blood pressure while they were being questioned by police. 
doctors had already noticed a link between lying and changes in a person's physiology. But the father of the modern polygraph is a guy named William Moulton Marston. And, and you guys, Marston is such a fucking crazy guy. If you don't know about him already, hold on to your butts. See, Bill Marston was a Harvard-educated psychologist who invented the systolic blood pressure test, a way of measuring spikes in blood pressure caused by lying during an interrogation, which is still part of the polygraphs we use today. He stole the idea from his wife, Elizabeth, when she noticed that whenever she got, um, aroused, she could feel her blood pressure rise. His new device was used during interrogations of German POWs in the Great War. In 1928, Marston published an essay titled Emotions of Normal People, which investigated and explored something known as disc theory. The idea is that most people can be ordered into four distinct personality types, dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. But Marston changed it to dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. Do you get a sense of where this is leading, maybe? Marston also believed that the idea of personal freedom was an outdated masculine construct. He and his wife believed in something called love allure, which promotes submission to a loving authority. Flash forward to 1940. A former student of Marston publishes an interview with him in the family circle. It's called Don't Laugh at Comics. In the interview, Marston talks about the educational potential of comic books. The essay catches the attention of comic book publisher Max Gaines, who asks Marston to come up with a new superhero. All the ingredients are there. A device you wrap around your body to make people tell the truth. The idea of powerful yet submissive women. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how Wonder Woman and her lasso of truth came to be. And just to fuck with everyone, Marston modeled Wonder Woman after that former student of his who wrote the interview. Her name was Olive Byrne, and she was the third in Bill and Elizabeth Marston's thruple. He eventually fathered two kids each with Elizabeth and Olive. After he died, the two women continued to live together in relative harmony. No lie. Here's how a modern polygraph works. An appointment is made with a qualified forensic psychophysiologist. That's what they call the trained examiner. There's a pretest where the examiner meets and interviews the subject. This is done for several reasons. This is the first opportunity for the examiner to hear the subject's story. I didn't murder my wife, I swear. It was the one-armed man. He knocked me unconscious on the beach and fled the scene. The examiner will build his questions from this story. Did you kill your wife? Did he knock you unconscious? The examiner is profiling the subject, assessing a baseline for how this person typically speaks and acts in order to spot any deviation from this normal behavior during questioning. After the interview, the subject is hooked up to the machine. Two rubber tubes called pneumographs are wrapped around the person's chest and stomach, much like Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. These tubes measure how fast the subject's chest expands and contracts. A blood pressure cuff is wrapped around his upper arm. Finally, 
galvanometers are attached to two of the subject's fingers. These are little clip-like things that measure the conductivity of skin. The idea here is that sweat conducts electricity better than dry skin, so the sweatier a person gets, the better their body conducts electricity. Spoiler alert, you don't really want to sweat. A lot of this is done digitally now, and they don't really use those things that look like earthquake detectors anymore. The various sensors connect to a computer that illustrates and records the biological rhythms of the subject. Now it's time for the examiner to ask a dozen or so questions. A mix of control questions, is today Monday? And questions that are more relevant to the alleged crime or alleged lie. Did you kill your wife? The little machines chart your breathing, heart rate, and sweat, and the examiner watches the feedback, looking for any drastic sudden changes to your base rate, like a conductor listening for dissonant notes in a familiar song. If your body reacts to the tough questions, if you get all sweaty and your blood pressure spikes, the examiner will read this as deception and call you a dirty, dirty liar. You may ask, why is an examiner even necessary? Your body either reacts to these questions or it doesn't. A pretty simple bit of software could see if you're showing signs of stress during questioning. Why couldn't the computer just determine whether you're being truthful or not? Well, because humans are weird. Not all humans act the same way under stress. Some of us don't react at all. Some of us are so anxious we react to every question. It takes a human to understand a human. And this is where the system fails. Because the biggest variable in this equation is the examiner himself. According to the site How Stuff Works, there are at least 3,500 polygraph examiners in the United States, but there's no government entity in charge of polygraph licensing. There's not really any such thing as a polygraph license. You could be a polygraph expert. Yes, I'm talking to you, dear listener. You could buy a polygraph on eBay tonight and give an exam tomorrow in Ohio, and nobody would bat an eye. Thanks to dumb TV shows, most people in the United States seem to believe that polygraphs are not admissible in court. But that's not true. They are admissible. They're used every day. However, in the United States, nobody can force anybody else to take a lie detector test. It is your right to say no. And if you do, the fact that you said no cannot be used against you in court. The first modern-day case where a lie detector was used to determine a man's guilt in court was in 1935. A man named Cecil Laniello stood accused of the attempted murder of a police officer in Wisconsin. The court called on inventor Leonard Keeler, who had built his own version of a polygraph machine in his lab. Both the prosecutor and defense attorney agreed to this, by the way. Laniello was pretty well cooked already, and the defense felt they had nothing to lose, and there was a chance he'd pass, and that could only help them. So Keller brought the machine to court and strapped his instruments to Laniello's chest and arm. And when they asked the man if he fired the shot, knowing the machine wouldn't lie, he shouted, I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. Kidding, I couldn't help it. What actually happened was they asked Laniello if he did it, and he said no, and the machine noticed his heart rate increased. Later, Keeler was called to the stand to testify about whether he believed Laniello was guilty based on his reactions. 
The Daily Beast has a great story about this if you want to know more. I'll provide the link online. Anyway, under oath, Keller demurred. I wouldn't want to convict a man on the grounds of the records alone, he said. But then that's exactly what happened next. Laniello was convicted because he failed the polygraph, and then Keller never shuts up about it again. He says, it means that the findings of the lie detector are as acceptable in court as fingerprint testimony. Well, it's a good thing they're not, Keller, you goof, because if they were, a psycho like Gary Ridgway could use it to beat the murder rap. In the early 1980s, the most prolific serial killer in America was prowling the red light districts between Seattle and Tacoma. Locals refer to this area of Washington state as SeaTac, and if you've never been there, it's one big gray blur of rundown plazas and dilapidated suburbs. And no matter where you go, you're never far from secluded forests and dead-end roads. The Green River cuts through the land here, a great tributary of the Duwamish watershed, an ancient connector of disposed Indian settlements. It's an old river full of dark history. This is where they found most of his victims, bodies of prostitutes and hitchhikers, mostly teen girls in dire straits, easy marks. Many of the girls had been strangled to death, the early ones by hand, the latter ones by ligature. The number was staggering. 71 girls found in and around the river. The police dubbed the monster the Green River Killer, and the police thought they had their man when they gave Melvin Foster a lie detector test, and he failed. A couple months after the first body turned up in 1982, Foster called the police to ask if there was anything he could do to help find the killer. This raised suspicion, since crime profilers believe serial killers like to insert themselves into the investigation of their crimes. Foster was brought in for questioning and given a polygraph. The examiner said he failed it. The police immediately searched his house for evidence. But all they found was a suspicious rock tumbler. They leaked his name to the media and a cloud of suspicion followed Foster everywhere he went for the next 20 years. The police had also interviewed a man named Gary Ridgway, who'd been arrested after he solicited sex from a prostitute inside the Green River Killer's zone of operation. But Ridgway passed the polygraph, according to their examiner, and they let him go. Foster remained in the hot seat until a DNA test in 2001 conclusively connected Ridgway to four of the Green River victims. To avoid the death penalty, Ridgway confessed to all of the Green River murders. He took credit for 71 kills, but was only charged in 49. However, he admits he cannot remember every woman he murdered, and experts believe the real number could be more than 90. Needless to say, Foster was relieved when Ridgway was arrested but also a little pissed off. Someone owes me something, let's start with that, he told the King County Journal in 2003. He wanted his rock tumbler back for starters, and an apology from the detective in charge of the case. If the court viewed lie detectors as infallible as fingerprints, Foster would have been put to death before the DNA evidence implicated Ridgway. Fans of this podcast know that I've poured my heart and soul into finding the man who killed little Amy Mihalovic in 1989. 
The investigators assigned to that case love using polygraphs to vet suspects in her abduction and murder. Years ago, I spoke to a man named Harold Bound, the subject of much suspicion early on in the investigation. Bound was a Vietnam vet who lived in a farmhouse on the property where Amy took riding lessons. He admitted to watching Amy from afar, and the lead agent working the case, Dick Wren, considered him the top suspect at the beginning. Bound agreed to a polygraph. It took place in a hotel room nearby. Bound, who'd worked in military intelligence, knew the machine was catching changes in his blood pressure. He didn't need Wren to tell him he was failing the test. So Bound asked for them to give him sodium pentothal, the truth serum, and question him again. And they did. And this time, Bound passed. But even that didn't satisfy Wren. After the test, the agent told Bound that he was very disappointed in his answers. A shadow hangs over Bound to this day, even though there are several better suspects in that case. My favorite suspect for Amy's murder is a former teacher from Amherst, Ohio, who fled to Florida in 2005 and lived out of a homeless shelter until police caught up with him again. This man was also given a lie detector test, which he supposedly passed. Because he passed, some of the investigators on the case don't consider him a suspect anymore, even though a witness picked him out of a lineup of 30 people. But here's the thing. The guy that killed Amy Mihalovic is likely a sociopath, and polygraphs don't work on sociopaths. A polygraph registers fluctuations in physical heart rate, blood pressure, and sweat. These physiological reactions are symptoms of fear, fear that the suspect is going to be caught in a lie. But true sociopaths like Gary Ridgway, like my suspect for the Amy Mihalovic murder, they lack fear. They lack many emotions. Some doctors believe that sociopaths lack the ability to even feel pain, at least pain in the sense that we know it. They cannot be hurt, physically or emotionally. So what do they have to be afraid of? Like Ridgway, the killing they did means so little to them that they sometimes forget about it. When I asked that teacher from Amherst if he killed Amy, his answer was curious. He didn't say no. Instead, he said, I have nothing to confess to. So the polygraph is worthless when it comes to catching serial killers. But it's just generally worthless too, because anyone who has access to Google can read all about how to trick a lie detector test. A New York Times article from 2015 recounts the story of Doug Williams, a former police officer and lie detector examiner from Oklahoma. After years of using the polygraph as a tool to force confessions out of would-be criminals, Williams had a come-to-Jesus moment, he says, when he realized he was a fraud and the machine was bunk. A polygraph is nothing more than a psychological billy club used to coerce and intimidate people, he said. He called it an insidious Orwellian instrument of torture. So Williams started a business a business where he coached people on how to beat the polygraph. The method is fairly simple. All you have to do is screw up those control questions at the beginning of the test. Every time you're asked a control question, you should think of something scary so that the machine registers a higher baseline. Think of falling. Think of drowning. 
Even stepping on a tack hidden in your shoe, like in Ocean's Eleven, that'll do the trick. But Williams found that mental imagery is best. Then when you're asked the tough questions, you should focus on a calming thought. For his efforts, Williams went to prison for a couple years. Undercover officers pretending to be bad guys asked Williams to tell them how to pass a polygraph to avoid jail time. It was a sting operation to take down the 69-year-old Robin Hood of polygraph examiners. It was payback, Williams said. I've made them look like fools and con men. In the United States, lie detector tests are not used in federal cases, but 23 states allow them to be used in their courts. There are Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Delaware, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming. People go to prison every day in those states based on the results of a machine that has been proven to be as reliable at assessing guilt as a toaster. Quietly, police and military units are testing newer devices they believe can detect lies. Brain scans during a suspect's questioning using fMRI machines show promise, but it raises some tricky Fourth Amendment issues if the suspect refuses to climb into the machine. And back in 2008, the U.S. Department of Defense approved the use of a handheld polygraph scanner that could be used in the field. It skips the problem of the examiner's fallibility. The machine decides on its own whether the person the soldier is questioning is lying or not. The DOD has limited its use to non-U.S. personnel for now. So be good for goodness sakes, as the old song goes. One day, Big Brother may scan you for truthiness. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find links to the other stuff I do, including virtual reality journalism. I also currently host Lake Erie's Coldest Cases for Discovery ID, and you can find every episode on idgo.com. My latest novel, Muse, will be published in May. You can order Muse and my other books online or anywhere books are sold. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Check out his other creation, Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, available to order on Amazon or also woodif.com. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Come with us to the field of wonders. Come with us to the field of wonders. Come with us to the field of wonders. Your money or your life. Come with us to the field of wonders. Your fire eater Come gave me five gold pieces to get. Come with us to the field of wonders. Your money or your life. Your money or your life. Come with us to the field of wonders. Your money or your life. 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 Your
Come with us to the field of wonders. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.